Hey guys, Marin here. So we recorded all 14 episodes of this podcast before the coronavirus pandemic. But as you listen to this episode, you may hear us talking about something that you're also hearing about as a possible treatment for patients with COVID-19. Now, I don't want to give too much of this episode away right at the top, but I've added a little message all about this episode's topic and its relationship to COVID-19 at the end of this episode. So stick around until after the credits for a little something extra. Okay, I hope you enjoy. Okay, I've got some bad news about this episode. Right. It requires that I infect you again. Not up for that. <laughs> You're not down for a little uh, drum roll, please. Sneezing in my general direction. Malaria. Even less down for malaria, <laughs> to be fair. But we're only going to do that to you because the longest standing treatment for malaria that is still often used today mm-hmm. was discovered by accident. Welcome back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, or indeed people. I am Greg Foote. And I'm Marin Hunsberger. And for this episode, I am telling the story, which means that Greg has no idea what's coming. Well, apart from apparently being infected with <laughs> <laughs> malaria. Okay, okay. So back Did to not the, sign up for that. Back to the story. As I was saying, the mysterious drug that's been used to treat malaria throughout so much of human history is called quinine. And you're about to give me crap about the way I say that, aren't you? No, it's not. It's (laughs) called quinine. No, it's absolutely... No, you're just wrong. I don't, I don't know how to tell you how wrong you are. We can agree that on different <laughs> sides of the pond, it's called different things. Okay, actually, this is hilarious because this leads us into the very beginning of our story about quinine, which I'm just going to keep mean, calling quinine. If that story starts by saying, Greg will call it quinine. <laughs> which is Marin true. Marin will call it quinine. It's going to be confusing, but everybody has been confused for a long time. In 1892, the American Medical Association publishes this paper, which is called the pronunciation of the word quinine. Amazing. Which is incredible. And I want you to read this, Greg. This this almost, when I read it, made me cry with laughter because I, know I it's knew... Cree. It's Cree with laughter. <laughs> Everybody's just going to be so confused <laughs> now. The authors of this paper open by saying... Pronunciation of the word quinine. A friend of ours who has been unsettled in his mental attitude about this word, in consequence of consulting the various dictionaries, has fallen into the habit of pronouncing the term differently every time he speaks it. <laughs> That's going to be like this podcast. <laughs> Others there are who resort to the subterfuge of using quinia or potentially quinia, which is really a confession of incapacity in managing the difficulties (laughs) of quinine or quinine. I love that. There's so much shade in that sentence. They were like, yeah, you could say it that way if you're a wuss. (laughs) Um, We are recording this in San Francisco, where therefore the pronunciation is quinine. So I'm very happy to run with that for this podcast. Thanks. So generous. What a concession on your part. So that is hilarious. But it also turns out, and we had to we had to address that at the top here, right? Between you and me, different pronunciations. But it also turns out that the pronunciation is a really good place to start with the story because the variations in how we say that word are related to the drug's origins. The original indigenous Peruvian word for the drug we now know as quinine is anglicized in either of two ways, either quina or quina. So K-I-N-A or Q-U-I-N-A, and it's pronounced Kina. And this particular article that we just read finishes by kind of throwing in the towel and basically saying there are six totally unique pronunciations. Pick one and stick to it and just choose. Wow. Yeah, at the time. So I'm sticking with quinine. You can say quinine. It's the same thing. We're talking about the same thing. So Peru, South America, pre-European colonization, 
we don't think South America has malaria. It's not until the Europeans begin the international slave trade that malaria spreads from Africa to pretty much the entire world or basically anywhere mosquitoes can survive. Do we know where it originated? Sub-Saharan Africa. Right. So those Europeans, they come sailing over to the Americas with all of their freaking diseases, one of which is malaria. And to let us know a little bit more about this particular disease and its treatments, I talked to an amazing scientist and I'll let her introduce herself. So I'm called Jaina Chan, and I'm a pediatrician by training. Um, my focus of work has been in infectious diseases, but largely malaria because of the importance of malaria in terms of morbidity and mortality in Africa. In a couple of weeks, I'll be transitioning into a new role. I'm moving to Malaria Consortium UK as the senior research advisor. I think largely still re- uh, working on malaria because uh, we need to keep the fight in ensuring that we reduce the burden of the disease. So Jane, she's working at what is called the Medical Research Council Unit in the Gambia. Mm-hmm. And this is a program dedicated to understanding and treating and preventing malaria. And this is because it's still a huge problem today. Even though we start our story in pre-colonization South America, hundreds of millions of people still contract malaria every year, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa and India, with an average of half a million deaths from malaria every year. Wow. But before we get into why malaria is still around, despite centuries of us dealing with it, we need to start with what it is. Mm-hmm. So malaria is a disease caused by... Mosquitoes. Exactly. Pretty much, the mosquitoes that cause malaria are actually carrying a teeny tiny parasite inside of them called plasmodium. And there are a couple of different kinds of plasmodium parasite that can cause slightly different kinds of malaria, but the most common one is called plasmodium falciparum. And it's hanging out in a mosquito's tummy. And when the mosquito bites you, it also deposits some of its own saliva into your bloodstream. It gozzes in you. Yeah, no. Delicious. Is that a thing you say? No, I don't don't Mm. think so. It's like spit, but it's just a minging term for it. (laughs) We also don't use minging. Is minging a thing you say? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, queen in. (laughs) Greg, you foreigner. So the saliva of the mosquito contains this parasite and now say the name again because it sounded great plasmodium falciparum falciparum yeah mm. isn't that great sounds like a harry potter spell oh my god you're right it does plasmodium falciparum yeah but it's not a good spell if it's a harry potter spell because it now is inside your body and it's going to use your body as its own personal playground for right. going through all of the different stages of its life cycle because remember it's a parasite so first it makes its way down to your liver where it multiplies and infects your liver cells and then bursts those liver cells open so that it can then enter the next stage of its life cycle in your bloodstream. And then once it's in your bloodstream, it infects your red blood cells as well and bursts then open too. That's disgusting. And obviously very nasty for someone who actually gets it. And as they destroy the red blood cells, the blood levels in this individual become low. They also block small vessels that uh, get oxygen to vital organs. If they block, for example, the oxygen supply to the brain, we get a form of malaria that we call cerebral malaria. And if they reduce drastically the amount of blood, we get another form of malaria, which we call severe malaria. And of course, with every rhythm of bursting of the red blood cells, they release toxins to the system, and the toxins are what cause the presentation with fever, headache, um, feeling colds, and body shakes that we call the usual malaria paroxysm. Just check I've got this right. Mm. Basically, 
mosquito spits into you. Yep. Spits in this parasite, which then goes through essentially a full life cycle inside your body. Infects the liver, infects your red blood cells, and then what they multiply and then burst out and then you've got more parasite and then then it essentially sucks that back up and then takes that to the next person. Yeah, exactly. So you can't actually catch malaria from someone who has malaria. It's a vector-borne disease, so you can only catch it from an infected mosquito. But of course, if you yourself are, you know, have this parasite in you, you also become a repository for the disease. Mm-hmm. So any mosquito that bites you can then carry that disease to someone else. So there are a couple different kinds, right? So there are different species of the parasite and depending on how far that parasite gets in its life cycle, depends on what kinds of symptoms you're going to see. So malaria, but little variable. There's lots of different kinds and it can be severe or not so severe. And for a long time, history credits Europeans with the discovery of our first treatment for malaria. But recently, historians have returned to that idea with a more critical modern eye. And they think it's actually more likely that the indigenous community and the spread of the disease indicates that malaria as a disease itself at this point has actually spread further into South America than European colonization has. So even in places... (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So you've got this vector-borne disease. It's spreading all over the continent faster even than the Europeans are coming. So the indigenous communities have been dealing with this disease for longer than maybe we previously thought. Did they have a natural remedy? Oh, Greg, did they ever? (laughs) For example, like, because I know, you know, aspirin was synthesized from the bark of a willow tree. So, you know, what was, what was, where do they find it naturally occurring? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because no one knows for sure exactly how communities in these Andean jungles of South America found this solution. There's no hard documentation for this, but oral storytelling gives us an outline of an incredible legend in these communities. So one of the natives had a high fever, got a bit confused and was wandering around uh, in the forest. And because of the wandering, he got dehydrated and tired and decided to drink out of a marshy field with the stagnant water. So when he did drink, he realized that the water was quite bitter and for a moment was quite worried, believing that he had been poisoned. But it so happened that after that, his fever cleared and he felt much better. And then he shared this news with the wider community in the village. And that was when they discovered that indeed, this particular bark that had fallen in the stagnant water and contributed to the bitter test could clear fevers at that time. And this was way before they even knew that this fever was malaria. So different legends exist. I'm doing a celebration dance. <laughs> you got it right, my studio. man. It was a bark, but a different bark. bark. I didn't know that. I know, just like Willow Bark is our originator of what we now use as aspirin, mm. as a drug. Here, what we have is bark falling into a pool of water, some tired, feverish man coming along in a hallucinatory state who's thirsty and says, yeah, I'll drink this puddle. And then suddenly his fever gets better. Now, key here, the water is bitter. Mm. What else is bitter? Yes, I see. I do know that yeah. tonic water, yeah. because I loves me a gin and tonic. It's pretty tasty. Even better without the tonic. <laughs> uh, but it's the tonic that has quinine in it, right? Quinine, my friend. Yes, I, I have heard that before. Exactly. So that is the active, well, not active, but that's the ingredient that makes tonic water bitter is quinine. So there's so much chance here, like the bark of the correct tree had to be soaking in this stagnant water for enough time, releasing the correct compound with enough quinine in it, because different kinds of this tree have different 
percentages of quinine and it can vary from tree to tree. And then this guy had to be desperate enough to drink from this murky standing water. Whilst being infected by malaria. And and again, we don't know that this fever is malaria. We don't know what malaria is. We don't know what's causing it, right? So he just knows he's really sick. And then he has to be smart enough to make the connection between this feverish act of desperation and the bitter taste of the water and the fact that he got better and figure out that the bitter taste of the water comes from the bark. I mean, this is... There's a lot going on Serendipity is the main driver of a lot of those early treatments. Surprisingly. Right. Brilliant, one might say. (laughs) Yes. So that's so many steps. And let's reiterate, we don't have any sort of record for this. We can only guess at how that whole series of steps and that knowledge became common practice. But the evidence that historians have seen recently does tend more toward indigenous communities being the first to bring this forward as a natural herbal remedy. So then when the Europeans arrive or or they go back or whatever, did they notice that that was something that they were doing and then kind of take that, take that bark and try to synthesize? That's our next step in this story, Greg, but we'll get to that right after a small break. Welcome back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and we are on the story of how quinine shaped history. So right after its potentially apocryphal legendary discovery by indigenous communities in South America, this bitter bark ends up being discovered to be the bark of what the indigenous communities call the Kina Kina tree. And it seems that they're using it pretty regularly to treat the fever and the shakes that are very characteristic of malaria, even though they don't know that this disease is, is caused by parasite or a mosquito. You know, we have no understanding of the disease so far. They just see, hey, this water makes people better. The first written record we have of quinine is from Jesuit missionaries in the 1600s who are introduced to it by the indigenous communities that they are, one might say, colonizing, that they're missionarying in. And then in the 1630s, a Spanish lady, a Spanish noblewoman who has come over to be a countess of a place in Peru that the Spanish are calling Cinchona. It's not their land to name, but okay. So she gets sick with fever and then the tree bark cures her fever and she gets better. And she brings this miracle bark back to Spain with her, where the Europeans name the tree the cinchona tree. So the indigenous word is quinaquina, but it becomes known very commonly by everyone around the world as the cinchona tree. Quinine sounds like it comes from the quinaquina tree. It's the Mm -hmm. same sort of spelling, right? Mm -hmm. So even though they've changed it to be called the cinchona tree, obviously they eventually go back to the quina as the basis of that name. Exactly. And like we just, you know, we talked about at the top with that very first ever name uh, that is probably related to the indigenous word Kina, we come back to that when Good. we name the drug. All right. So they didn't kind of stick naming the drug to Cinchona. They went yeah, back to its still, roots. I mean, the roots. It- <laughs> roots. Tree in it. Bark. You're sneaking them in there. Groaners, Greg. I mean, we give the indigenous people of the Americas malaria and they give us quinine. It doesn't really seem like a fair trade. Mm. So that's how the treatment gets from South America. It's original you know, miraculous discovery back to Europe and therefore all over the world because, you know, the Europeans are busy invading other places and they take the bark with them as they go. They're often going to tropical and subtropical places where they need to protect themselves against fevers like malaria. So I kind of imagine that they're just carrying around this like twig (laughs) and they're just like (laughs) nibbling the bark every now and again. Is it, is it that basic or are they actually, you know, doing a solution of it dipping it in a thing and Excellent boiling it. Excellent question, Greg. So they they do need to soak the bark of the tree in water to extract the active ingredient, which is quinine, right? So the cinchona tree, kina kina tree, it produces this substance that we use in 
a liquid, a drink, a water called quinine. And up until the 1800s, the way people are using the bark to treat their malaria is pretty inefficient. They dry the bark out, they grind it into a powder, and then they mix the powder with wine because the powder is so bitter. Great choice. He's got to drink a lot of wine. Great choice. What a gross tasting wine. I'll have a quinine cocktail, please. It's like sangria, but better. That's hilarious that you say that because there's actually this beautiful poster from sometime in the 19th century that is as prepared on the recommendation of British Pharmacopoeia, orange quinine wine. And it's like this beautiful artistic poster advertising a quinine wine solution. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Orange quinine wine. Bit like sangria. Proposal according to the British Pharmacopoeia, 1898. Yuck. Oh. There you go. So we go centuries using this ground up powder from the bark of a tree that works in a way we don't understand to cure a fever we don't understand the cause of. And I just think that's so funny. Like so much of human medicine has been like, well, this seems like it probably works. Yeah. Let's work out why it works. (laughs) My brain's still on orange quinine wine um, because (laughs) if we drink gin and tonic and it's got tonic in it, which has quinine in it and therefore, well, we're going to discuss it later, but Mm -hmm. maybe we should be drinking orange quinine wine. Has anyone tried this? Yeah, just add a little quinine to your sunny D. Why not? What's the one that uh, the the French drink? Oh, orangina. I love orangina. I could get into that. Shake it to wake it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm just looking at this. It says one wine glassful, two or three times a day. Each ounce contains one grain of pure hydrochloride of quinine. So we've got this mysterious substance and this relatively mysterious fever. But in 1820, the actual compound in the bark that is active against malaria, the quinine itself, we realize that that's what's happening because someone isolates and purifies it and names it quinine. Up until now, we're just using, you know, dried, powdered cinchona tree. And these two scientists are named Pierre-Joseph Peltier and Joseph Caventou. Debatable about if that's actually how you pronounce their names, but that's what I'm going with. And that's pretty much the quinine we still use today. So the one that they isolate and purify and name in 1820 is the same quinine that we often use today. So quinine is still very effective against treating malaria, but it's got a couple of downsides. Have you, do you know anybody who's ever taken an anti-malarial drug? Or who has had to take? I've taken quinine. anti-malarial. How did it drugs? make you feel? Did it make you feel weird, or did you did you not feel anything? Yeah. So the, um, there's sensitivity to light. Mm-hmm. I remember is one of them. Um, there's like tingly fingers. Mm-hmm. I think is another one of them. So that's an anti-malarial drug, which quinine also is. And right now we haven't gotten into synthetics yet. We're just using quinine, and quinine has very similar side effects. It has what's called a low therapeutic index, which is a nice way of saying that it can get really toxic really fast. So yes, it's effective, but also if you take too much of it, it gets, stuff gets real. (laughs) I was going to say something else there, but that's not appropriate. Like if you take too much quinine, we see impairment of, or even loss of hearing and vision. You get vertigo, vomiting, nausea, diarrhea. Sounds very similar to if you drink too much G&T. Oh yeah? Have you been there, Greg? (laughs) Too much G&T. Well, you know. Nausea. We've all been there. Memory loss. But in more severe cases, it can also impair your body's ability to break down insulin, which can cause hypoglycemia. And in really, not not good, in really severe cases, something delightful happens that we're calling skin eruptions. You can be at much higher risk of blood clots, liver damage, and psychological effects like psychosis. Is this a difficult balancing act then? Extremely. People have got to take enough of what was originally that powder, but now they've isolated and purified it, but not too much. Yes, exactly. And here's the thing. Here's the kicker. We don't know why. We don't know why it has these side effects. And 
We don't know why it works against malaria in the first place. Really? So the, the exact mechanism of action is not very clear, but what has been shown is that when they do take quinine, what quinine does is that it rapidly clears what we call the schizons. The schizons are the mature forms of the malaria parasite during the red blood cell cycle, the time when the cells are infecting the red blood cells. So essentially what it does, it rapidly kills off these schizons and then clears them. And in so doing, it prevents them from infecting additional red blood cells and causing the pathology that we see with malaria. So we know what it does, but we don't know how it does it. Exactly. It, it acts against these parasites. It prevents them from completing their life the cycles. It clear, exactly. That, that mature version yeah. of the parasite, that life cycle stage. And it clears them out of your body, but we don't really know why. Gosh, right. I mean, there are so many drugs that we don't actually, surprisingly, don't know how they work chemically, physiologically. Exactly. It's kind of a black box. So that always kind of, that, that always blows my mind because we're still in the dark. It's it's almost like at the very beginning when this guy drank the water from the pond, we're just like one stage past that, mm. even though we like to think we're all advanced. So we're going to go back to the 1800s. The Europeans are still busy colonizing all kinds of places where malaria is problematic. And this is the period that some consider the peak of malaria wreaking havoc upon the world. Two researchers who wrote a paper about this historical burden of malaria say at some point during the 19th century, malaria reached its global limits. In absolute numbers and in the proportion of the humanity now affected, malaria was exacting its highest ever toll of sickness and death. Well over one half of the world's population was at significant risk from malaria. Gosh. And of those directly affected by malaria, at least one in 10 could expect to die from it. No, so 50% are at risk and one in 10 of those at risk will die from it. One in 10 of those directly affected by malaria. Which is 50%. So that's, At risk and directly affected, meh, meh. Oh, okay. You know. So we're not talking 5% mortality around the world. On average. At this peak in, might the, have got my maths wrong, but that's, in the 19th century. You're wow. The, you're the maths was not me. And then add into the mix, quinine has just been purified from the bark of this cinchona tree by those two scientists, if you remember, back in the 1830s. Peltier and Cavanu. Oh, look at you. You're following along. I scribbled it down. Greg's paying attention. <laughs> and so our treatment that we have is more effective and more potent now. So you think, okay, well, there's your answer. There's our solution to the malaria epidemic pandemic that is threatening the world, right? But actually, there are several problems. So at this time in the 1800s, Europe is expanding their reach into all places all over the world. But also at the same time, something is happening in South America. They've recently just said, uh, no thanks. This kind of sucks. We'd like to be independent, please. And so influenced by the American Revolution and the French Revolution and led by revolutionary icons like Simón Bolívar, one after the other, Venezuela, Colombia, Bolivia, Ecuador, Argentina, Chile, Peru, all win their independence and become sovereign nations. And this is at the time that the value of quinine is becoming more and more clear. Is that the only place they can get it from? We can still only get quinine from the ah, cinchona tree. Yeah, because there isn't a... Well, we should really call it the quina, quina tree yeah, out but, of respect, but I, I get it. Nobody does, yeah. Right, so yes, exactly. they're still getting it from source. They haven't yeah. found the synthetic way to recreate that exactly. molecule yet. And so South America kind of wants to flex its muscles a little bit here on the global stage and Damn say, right. hey, listen, we control this resource. 
What are you going to do about it? If you notice, a lot of those civil wars were being conducted in areas with tropical climate, so a lot of mosquitoes and with that, a lot of malaria. So most of these armies were experiencing a lot of loss of their soldiers because of this febrile condition that was initially not known. So essentially, uh, quinine became a weapon of war. In other words, the armies that had access to quinine were more successful in their ventures in capturing and expanding their empires. So quinine not only plays a role in the wars themselves and who wins and who succeeds, but then... The health of the soldiers. The health of the soldiers. It's a good way of describing it, actually, that it's that it's a weapon. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Know, in, in a one-way one way, shape or form. Exactly. And and Jane also goes on to say that more of the peop- of the invaders of any tropical nation where malaria is very common would die of malaria than of anything else. So we've got this incredibly deadly disease, malaria. We have the solution, quinine. And we have South America who says, hey, man, this is ours. Actually, something that I really want to show you, I want you to take a look at this, Greg. Simon Bolivar, who's the great liberator of many South American countries, actually includes this inchona tree, this tree that creates quinine, in the official Peruvian coat of arms. Right. So this is the Peruvian coat of arms. It's beautiful. So uh, there are two um, uh, limbs of some tree or bush, I guess, round a shield. And in the shield, there are three sections of it. One looks like a possibly an alpaca. <laughs> My favorite is the top left. I thought it was going to be a llama too, because it's Peru, right? It's actually something called a vicuña, which is a high Andean antelope. It looks very cute. Yeah, it is. It's really um, cute. You okay, should look so up the picture. A, a high Andean antelope. And the bottom one is like a... A big golden horn? Yeah, with... it's it's a cornucopia with gold coins coming out to represent the gold mining in South America, but mm. also... Makes uh, me always think of uh, Hunger Games. Yeah, exactly. Oh when my God, the horn. Cornucopia. Yeah, exactly. Prosperity. And then the one we're talking about, I'm assuming, is the one in the top right-hand corner, which is a small tree, large shrub. <laughs> <laughs> small tree slash large shrub. Exactly. And that's the cinchona tree. And I just wanted us to look at that on the Peruvian coat of arms as designated by this, uh, this iconic South American independence figure, Simón Bolívar, because he, uh, which really signifies, I think, the importance of this tree, not only to e- economy and power, but also identity, mm. like the ownership and the origination of this, of this plant. It's not just in Peru. Is it in other it's, South American? It's other South American countries as well. Yeah, but this this is where it's you know graphically codified into a coat of arms. What's the name of that animal? <laughs> Vicuña. So this age where South America wants to start to flex its power and it's going to start maybe with the cinchona tree actually begins an age of botanical espionage. Oh, yes. Because European countries like the UK and the Netherlands, who are still on their colonization kick, would basically send spies over to these South American countries to gather cinchona seeds and send them back to Europe so that Europe could try to grow their own cinchona trees and have their own quinine industry and not be subject to the whims of the South American government. That is an amazing idea. Botanical espionage. Oh my goodness, that's the next James Bond, isn't it? Right? That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Could those seeds grow? Yes. Eventually they're successful. Wow. I know. So people have stolen... I suppose you've got botanical gardens, you've got um, greenhouses and such to actually recreate the right clime. Well, exactly. Except now the Europeans are clever. They steal those seeds successfully and they plant cinchona trees in their colonies. So the Dutch start a cinchona plantation on the island of Java. The British have their cinchona plantation in the Nilgiri Hills of southern India, which is where they're, you know, colonizing and invading. And historians and malaria experts agree 
that who has access to quinine at this time is totally critical to the way this period of history takes shape. But then they also kind of controlled the trade because at that time the, there was a global war in South America, Indonesia, in the India. So essentially it shaped the trajectory of these wars in determining who would be more successful in their conquest of the different areas that they were invading. So I think largely that is one of the main things that you could say quinine um, achieved in terms of shaping history, but also, of course, economically, if you look at some of the competition in terms of who was cultivating much more quinine and who controlled the economies really of this quinine at the time. So a bit of interesting history related to this product and especially in determination of the expansion of empires and in determining who won the wars at that time to spread a, a bit of colonization in the different areas. Yeah. What an interesting story. This cinchona tree is not only play a key role in protecting troops and people who get malaria, but then it also becomes this like real currency for all of these countries around the world. And and I'm guessing that you could trace where various people have colonised by looking at where the cinchona tree is around the world. And you've got, sadly, those invasions to thank for taking this tree around the world. That's a really good point that I haven't hadn't really considered, is that quinine made this colonisation possible and then also brought quinine to all yes. of these places. Yeah, it works in both directions. Right, right, right. It's both. And so it's not only shaping the history of who's in power and who owns what land and, and who is in control, but also there's huge economic shifts happening at this time revolving around cinchona. So the British, as I mentioned, were trying to cultivate cinchona in their colonies in southern India. But the Dutch are just like totally going crazy in Java and they are producing so much cinchona and of a very specific variety that has a super high percentage of quinine that it's actually driving the prices way, way down because there's so much of it. Mm. And the British can't compete. And tea is more profitable. So they abandon their cinchona and they just plant tea in India instead. And so was so that just through basic crossbreeding or, or trying to find variants of well, it? How do they get so much also, higher production? Also chance, because the Dutch get their hands on the original seeds that they get over to Java are of a cultivar that has a higher percentage of quinine wow. than the seeds that the British get. So that's also chance. Yet more serendipity. Exactly. So that was just their botanical espionage happened to bring back those particular just seeds. happened to be more successful. Up goes the production. Mm-hmm. Efficiency, essentially, and then they're the reigning champs. Exactly. So the Dutch now have a complete monopoly on the cinchona market. And Europe, the UK and North America all have a, a total monopoly on the production of quinine from that cinchona bark. So South America has been like, you know, totally written out of the picture by this point, by colonization and by what we're calling botanical espionage. I kind of just made that term up. We're not, that's not Did you. I mean... It's what I, I love it. <laughs> Thanks. I don't think uh, if nobody should be misled, it's not an official term, but that's what I'm calling it. I mean, that's amazing. Write a book. Just don't talk about it on like a public podcast or anything. Just keep it under your hat. I'm trademarking this. Don't know if that's how it works. So throughout the end of the 1890s and into the early 1900s, the overproduction of Cinchono by the Dutch actually becomes a pretty big problem. Why? Well, we'll get to that right after the break. And we're back. You are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, where we're talking about the history of quinine. I've made myself in G&T. Oh, I wish. Next time we need to get drinks in here, Greg. <laughs> so the Dutch. Surprisingly drunk. <laughs> 
surprising or not so surprising. <laughs> if you know that there's a, a lot, a lot, a lot of something, the mm-hmm. price goes down. Mm-hmm. Yes. And eventually that's bad for an industry, right? Because then they yeah, can't... Yeah, because the profit margin, as the price goes down, the profit margin shrinks. And therefore, if if your production goes up so much that the unit cost goes down so much that it's not financially viable to make the thing, yep. then you essentially, the bottom falls out of the industry. Precisely. So this is what's happening to Sinchona trees in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And the prices keep falling and falling and falling and falling. The industry is in peril, which obviously puts everybody with malaria in peril because if you can't sell cinchona, you can't make quinine. And so eventually the Dutch government steps in and they essentially say, get out of here to the free market. And they put an artificial price on on cinchona bark, like it will sell for this much and no lower ever, essentially establishing what is widely recognized as the first ever pharmaceutical cartel. We're calling it the quinine cartel. Wow. Yeah. The cartel is also where we can start talking about synthetic quinine equivalents because a synthetic drug that is also active against malaria, it's called chloroquine, was developed in the 1930s, but partly due to the economic pressure exerted by the quinine cartel, it's not widely used, right? So they're trying to suppress artificial quinine replacements because they want, obviously, this Inchona industry yeah, to keep... Yeah, they want the monopoly of the market. Of course. Super fun side note, people actually try to start synthesizing quinine as early as the 1850s, and they're mostly unsuccessful because it's really, really, really hard. But one particularly precocious chemistry student is like convinced he can do it by himself at home, <laughs> and he's trying really hard, and he does not succeed. But he does accidentally invent the first ever synthetic purple pigment, which oh. changes fashion forever. Brilliant. <laughs> Surprisingly. No way. I've used that already. So that's a wonderful, hilarious intermeshment of two things that you would never have thought would be related, quinine so, and fashion. If you're listening to this whilst wearing something purple, swigging a G&T, you have this episode is made for you. Quinine to thank. Huh. So we're in the 1930s. Synthetic quinine equivalents have not taken off yet. But then what happens in the 1940s, Greg? War. Yeah. World War II. It happens. It changes the whole world in so many ways. But remember, the Dutch have a stranglehold on cinchona farming and quinine production, and they're centered in Java. In the 1940s, the Japanese invade Java, and now they have control over the cinchona trees. Wow. Isn't this fascinating? I know. You don't think about how important the ownership of the land is and the kind of the path of these seeds and their link to warfare and... oh. So interesting. Exactly. And when you're taking medicine in a doctor's office, that something could still be so dependent on like, I don't know, a living tree on an island and how tenuous and fragile that is. So the Japanese invade Java and the world, the rest of the world goes, uh, okay, crap, how are we going to make quinine? Especially as we enter World War II and we need to have that medicine so that our troops can stay safe from malaria. So is this when chloroquine, chloroquine steps up? It's its time. Precisely. Greg, this is the spark for the development of lots of different kinds of synthetic anti-malarial drugs that don't make us dependent on the bark of the cinchona tree. Because think about it, if you can make it in a lab, then... The reason they haven't made it earlier is they, if they know what the active 
molecule is, they could have found a way to synthesize it, right? Find something similar, react it with a bunch of different things until the right active areas of that molecule align and you've and you've recreated your synthetic version Precisely. of the original quinine. Fine. But that takes a lot of time and therefore a lot of money. So if you've got access to the Sinchona tree already, there's no point doing it. So once you remove that access, you are suddenly given a kick up the butt to actually do it. So they could have done it earlier, but they didn't need to, but now they do. You've absolutely hit the nail on right on the head. And we do have that one synthetic version before the war and before we really need to invent something synthetic. But you're right. Cinchona is much cheaper, much easier. And the people who are economically invested in that industry are like, yeah, man, don't do it. We don't need to. So that's the beginning of this synthetic anti-malarial drug journey, which takes us into today. And those drugs are both super helpful and also super problematic. Why? Jane will tell us. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, if you look at the um, anti-malarial drug discovery, I think a lot of the work that has gone into drug discovery has been directly to respond to challenges that one drug presents, for example. So with quinine, because of the adverse event profile, for example, uh, over time, scientists discovered chloroquine, which was which had a better adverse event profile, was more efficacious. But of course, with widespread use of chloroquine, that uh, caused resistance. And then the drug discovery uh, priorities changed to be able to address this new challenge that comes up from resistance. So essentially, that's largely what has been informing the drug discovery. Um, and sometimes it's modifications of an existing molecule to remove some of the untoward events and to produce a better kind of molecule to be able to uh, respond to the same challenge of malaria. So chloroquine leads to resistance yeah. from the uh, malaria the parasite, parasite, I guess, in the way that resistance always happens. You know, there are random mutations and then some of those strains are able to uh, resist the effect of the chloroquines and it wipes out some of them, but not these hardy guys who mm -hmm. hang around mm -hmm. and then you don't have an effective drug. And then you're screwed. Exactly. And it's interesting that she says a lot of the impetus for developing chloroquine is also not only just because of this pressure from this lack of access to the Sinchona resource, but also because quinine, as we mentioned, is really hard to take. It's a hard drug to be on because it can adversely affect your body so much. So we're also invested in developing synthetics that are a little easier on the patient that don't have so many bad side effects. So chloroquine comes up. It's really effective. It has less bad side effects. Now we're using it. And then within a couple of years, we have chloroquine resistant malaria. What do you do then? Because it's not like you can just modify that active molecule. I mean, people try and they do. We come up with a bunch of different kinds of what we call quinine derivatives or quinine equivalents. Chloroquine, primaquine, mefloquine. I think that was probably the one that you were on when you were given that drug that starts with an M. We have a whole class of actives against malaria that we're trying to develop that are based on quinine. And we're always trying to come up with new ones because we want them to be easier to take for the patient. And we, we need to keep altering them because the malaria parasites keep developing resistance. It's a to constant them. game of cat and mouse. It's an arms race. Arms race. That's yes. the phrase. Yes. yes. Once something changes, then you need to find a way to change to affect it. And then it has to respond to that. And then you have to find a way to hit that again. It's a never ending cycle. Exactly. But here's the kicker. Do you know what malaria has never developed resistance to? Quinine. Quinine itself. The OG, wow. the non-synthetic version. I wonder why. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but have they made a synthetic version of quinine? Beautiful question, Greg. Yes, 
We have. But it's just taken longer. It's taken longer. And they had chloroquine for a while, so, you know, it's they didn't have to do it. It's very hard. And it, it, I've, been, I've had trouble trying to discover this in the literature, but I did dig into this because I had this question as well. I think we still primarily produce regular quinine, so a non-synthetic, you know, just OG quinine, from the bark of the cinchona tree because it's still cheaper. It's still cheaper and easier to do that and to do that at scale. Wow. Than to synthesize it in the lab because it's so hard. So tonic water it, it therefore looks like that actually does still come from the bark. It does. And here's where we can come back to your tonic water question. Finally. <laughs> and this is sort of an unrelated little side fact. Quinine also plays a big role in history because it is widely credited with being the reason why the Panama Canal was actually eventually finished. Because the Panama Canal came upon a million and one different reasons why it was so delayed. Mm. One of the big ones being the people digging the Panama Canal kept dying of malaria. And what they used to give those workers was a prescription of many, 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 many glasses a day of tonic water. Right. With, with it must be said, very high percentages of quinine. Okay. The percentage of quinine in today's tonic water is far below what we call a therapeutic dose. Right. It looks like tonic water has about 83 milligrams of quinine per litre, whereas the therapeutic dose is 500 to 1,000 So you'd have to drink milligrams. quite a lot of tonic water. So say you even went for the 500 gram, the lowest version of that therapeutic dose, that means you've got to drink six. Ooh. Six glasses of tonic water. Tonic no, water's... six litres. Six litres of tonic water. <laughs> tonic water is not that good, man. <laughs> wow. So you can imagine they're sort of like gagging down this incredibly bitter stuff just to get through being able to complete their hard manual labor of digging the Panama Canal. So we come back to this issue of resistance in current malarial populations of the parasite. And it's an area of active study, because as we said at the top, malaria is still a huge problem. And the answer to addressing the resistance issue is really complicated because it lies at the intersection of disease ecology, epidemiology, genetics, the evolutionary biology of malaria. It's a really thorny issue. But we've still got the OG tool, quinine. Yeah, I mean, I think one key component of this drug is how valuable it has been over more than 400 years. We've had anti-malarials that have been developed and in five years they are no longer useful because uh, resistance to the products has really accumulated to levels that they have no clinical impact. I think one key aspect of quinine is that whereas there have been cases of resistance reported in a few places, largely quinine has remained a very vital and useful drug over time. And even if the uh, newer anti-malarial drugs that uh, have been produced over the years, I think quinine will remain an important component for the treatment of malaria for several more years to come. I think she's really downplaying it there several more years to come. I think we're still a long way away from not having to use quinine anymore, especially because if you're wondering, there is no vaccine for malaria. You can't be you know, given a jab for it before you go to a malaria area. You can be given a prophylactic drug, uh, you know, like drugs to take while you're there and before you go. Do they work by um, like shielding you from the Essentially, mosquito or like yeah, well, stopping them? Well, you're still going to get the parasite. Like the parasite's still going to be deposited in your body, but it just won't be able to survive. Ah, right. So it doesn't put off the mosquito from biting you or anything like that. It's exactly. not like a um, mosquito repellent. I yeah. think that's a different type of thing. Right, got it. We haven't talked about the fact that if you put a UV light or a black light 
over tonic water, it fluoresces. Mm. Mm. That's I think that's down to the, the quinine. Yes, exactly. And I think that's related to how hard it is to synthesize because it's a highly fluorescent molecule. And the reason it fluoresces is due to its chemical structure. It's got this alkaloid uh, central structure that's very key to its function as a drug. And that's the reason it fluoresces, but is also one of the reasons why it's so hard to mimic synthetically. Huh. I've also just realized whenever I hear you say quinine, the next time I use the word quinine, when I hear See? Jane say quinine, that's the next time I use quinine. I'm such a sponge. We're I'm like, so easily swayed. <laughs> You're a flip flopper, Greg. No, we're like the guy at the beginning of the, the paper at the top where we just say it a different way every other time we use it. <laughs> now we see how this happens. So I, I'd like to bring us home just at the end here with how much research there still needs to be done into malaria as a disease anti-malarial drugs. There are several vaccines in development right now. We have managed to synthesize quinine itself, but as far as I can tell, the preferred source for quinine is still the cinchona tree. So Greg, I'm going to get you to take us home by reading some words from a recent paper on the subject. Malaria remains one of the most important infectious diseases in the world, being a significant public health problem associated with poverty, and it is one of the main obstacles to the economy of an endemic country. So yeah, that really kind of shows um, its impact, not only health, but also economically. Exactly. And not only of malaria, but also of quinine as a drug and all of the resources used to produce it. So that's that story is amazing because it it's not just about this really important a compound, an active compound that that is still important now as much as it was where our story started. And it's about ownership. It's about identity of who who whose it is. But then it's about colonialism and war taking that around the world and changing people's access to it. Plus the old quinine cartel. That was fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Greg. I really enjoyed telling you that story. I think it's so cool how much bigger it really is than this tiny molecule at the center of a compound of a drug that we might take for granted these days. If you enjoyed this story, please do rate and review Surprisingly Brilliant. Uh, it really helps the podcast grow. Tell your mates. Tell your friends. I mean, tell your enemies. You know, uh, <laughs> the more listens, the better. Tell everyone. <laughs> Hopefully we'll have a whole load of new episodes coming your way soon. So subscribe to catch them. If you've got a story from science history that you would like us to tell or a discovery or an invention that you'd like us to dig out the story behind get in touch email us brilliant at seeker.com we would love to hear from you we want to know what you want us to cover that's brilliant at seeker.com so it's credits time surprisingly brilliant is a podcast from seeker and today's episode on quinine was researched written and produced by me Marin hunsberger if you want more of me in my face and my voice you can find me <laughs> on instagram at Marin b on twitter at Marin hunsberger on youtube YouTube at Marin Hunsberger. I'm on Seeker too. Come say hi. And it was uh, it was listened to by me. My name is Greg Foot. Hi, just at Greg Foot on Twitter and Instagram if you want to get in touch. Our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Our studio engineer was Ariella Markowitz. Our supervising producer was David Zwick. And our executive producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hatakuda. Finally, another huge thank you to our guest expert, Dr. Jane Achan. She is incredible, and I thank her for her expertise and also her work in this field. If you want more. On her and her publications. They are in the podcast description along with the rest of the sources that I used to write this episode. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. And we'll, uh... we'll speak to you next time. Yeah, I'll be bringing the story. Uh, you'll get to chill out and just listen. Thanks. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.
Hey guys, thanks for listening and welcome to the COVID-19 addendum to this episode. So you may have heard that two anti-malarial drugs, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, are being put forward as possible treatments for patients with COVID-19, which is the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. Now, these are two synthetic compounds that were created as alternatives to quinine, as we talked about in this episode, as treatments for malaria. They have the benefit of being less toxic and more effective than quinine in treating some cases of malaria sometimes, but they also have the problem that malaria-causing parasites can develop resistance to them. Now, there is also very limited data that these drugs are effective in treating COVID-19, and much of that data is what we call anecdotal. That means that the doctors who gave it to some of their patients said that it seemed to have helped, but that doesn't give us very much information about if it's really those drugs that are helping, or if it's something else, or even how it works to fight the disease. What we really need is something called a randomized double blind study where some people receive the drug and some people receive a placebo and we need a really large sample size, but there has been very little to no research of this kind to support the benefit of these drugs. The Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA in the United States, has emergency approved both of these drugs for use in clinical settings for patients with COVID-19, but based on almost no evidence, which has actually been very controversial. And that's partly because these drugs do carry a pretty significant side effect burden. They can have extremely toxic interactions with other drugs like the diabetes drug metformin, which lots of people are on, and they can be dangerous for patients with some pre-existing conditions. And as a result of so much press around these drugs and sort of all of this hype, some people have also taken it upon themselves to self-treat at home, with several people actually poisoning themselves and dying from taking too much of these drugs and without any medical supervision. So it's a pretty sticky situation. The WHO is conducting a large-scale trial of that gold standard variety that I was talking about earlier to determine if these drugs really could be useful in the treatment of COVID-19, but the results are a ways away. Now, I hope this addresses any questions around the relationship of quinine-like drugs and COVID-19 that may have popped up for you during this episode. I know it's not much clarification because the situation is still a little murky, but I hope that sort of puts it in context for you, and I hope you're staying safe and healthy out there. I'm wishing you and yours all of the best, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening.